This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. This week, we continued with our comprehensive coverage of Ontario's long-term care crisis with a specific focus on the tragic and devastating second wave COVID-19 situation at Tender Care Living Nursing Home in Scarborough. In addition to dozens of deaths related to the virus, we're also hearing of conditions inside tender care in what some critics are calling a humanitarian crisis. Is this another sign that the Ford PCs and in particular LTC Minister Marilee Fullerton are doing a poor, even dismal job of handling the COVID situation in nursing homes? Or is this happening, as Dr. Fullerton says, because community spread is far greater now than back in the spring? She's even gone so far as to say that management by the government of long-term care homes is much better in the second wave than in the first wave. We asked Dr. Fullerton to join us on Fight Back, but her office replied in an email, quote, She's too busy dealing with the LTC crisis. I was joined to get reaction to what's happening at Tender Care and in the wider LTC sector by long-term care advocate and expert Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, along with David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, and Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath. I was really disappointed to hear the minister try to deflect any responsibility whatsoever for the crisis that's uh, once again ripping through our long-term care homes. What we got from the government is some, you know, promise that at some point in, in you know, the next two or three or four or five years, uh, we're going to see uh, some kind of investment in, in more staffing. But in the summertime, they could have been ramping up the staffing. Quebec, you know, put out a call to hire 10,000 uh, new PSWs. British Columbia, I think, uh, hired 7,000 over the summer particularly to shore up their long-term care homes. Uh, and Ontario really sat on its hands and did nothing. You know, this Ford government really did nothing uh, to, um, you know, to, to learn from the first wave and to, and to save lives in long-term care in the second wave. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's just heartbreaking. It's tragic. Uh, and it, it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't be happening. People want to stay in their homes longer, but we don't have a home care system that provides folks with the opportunity to do that. Uh, and so we need to shore up our, our home care system as well. We need to get the profits out of both home care and long-term care and make sure that every dime that we're investing is going to the care of our loved ones. That means both uh, long-term care and home care. It has not been a priority for the Ford government, notwithstanding uh, Mr. Ford's um, you know, a false claim that he had put an iron ring around long-term care back in the spring. That never happened. It still hasn't happened. Uh, you know, he keeps saying he'll spend, he'll spare no expense. That's obviously not true. Uh, so it does mean uh, that we need to make those investments. We have to make it a priority and make those investments. 
Now, waiting on the line to comment uh, has been David Kravitz, who is the chief marketing officer at CARP, a new vision of aging, along with VP here at Zoomer Media. And and David, uh, as we know, it, there was a recent inspection uh, at Tendercare, which is um, unfortunately becoming uh, a focus for the devastation in the second wave. Well, it's true, and I've, I've dug up something in between that's even more shocking. This report on tender care was filed by the ministry's inspector on December 16th and talked about uh, the scope of noncompliance being widespread, staff not properly following um, infection prevention rules, misusing personal protective equipment, non-luck PPE caddies outside rooms, a whole list of things. But here's the thing that's, uh, that I, I found out. They had a previous inspection on October 16th in that home and a previous one to that on August 4th. Both of those previous inspections were in response to patient complaints, one about verbal abuse, one about physical abuse. That's fine. Nothing totally appropriate to send in an inspector when there's a complaint. But my question is, didn't the inspector see anything wrong when they were inside the building on October 16th? Dr. Stamatopoulos, uh, you can, I, I know you want to comment on what you're hearing uh-huh. from David. Oh, I, I, you know what? This wasn't the first incident of this. So Sunnycrest and Whippy was consumed. The whole home has, has been devastated by the outbreak. Everyone, everyone at the home has actually experienced COVID. So the same thing happened. They had a ministry inspector there, found the exact same thing. Just completely preventable errors here. This was negligence. And, and I was asking those same questions and I was being very critical at that earlier, uh, Sunnycrest report, which came out the November 30th. The, the, you were in there, presumably for a week, probably at least a few days, making these observations. How is there no direct path to your minister, right? To say, you need to get help in here immediately. What, you just go home, you write the report, you file it, you call it a day? While people are dying and while the quicker every single day you waste before getting help in there, the the body bags line up. So there's negligence here at all levels, frankly. I don't understand how we have inspectors in these facilities and we don't have people whistleblowing soon, sooner than this. You know how we find out that there's a problem? We get reports from family members and we get reports from the usually hospital staff that go in as emergency reactive uh, measures. And they're the ones that are completely disgusted with what they see, and they whistleblow. I mean, this shouldn't be happening. Long-term care advocate and expert, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and VP at Zoomer Media, and Ontario Opposition NDP Leader Andrea Horvath. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. In the midst of the second wave COVID crisis and a province-wide lockdown in Ontario, Premier Doug Ford was in damage control this past week over a decision by his finance Minister Rod Phillips to take a personal trip to St. Bart's in the Caribbean. The news broke on Tuesday. And what made it worse Wednesday was Premier Ford's admission he had known for two weeks where Phillips was after Phillips got to St. Bart's. Before the Premier revealed he knew of Phillips' whereabouts, I was joined by John McEtitian, conservative activist, political consultant, and president of Bradgate Research Group, Patrick Gossage, liberal strategist and chairman of Media Profile, and opposition NDP finance critic Sandy Shaw. 
is just a jaw-dropping thing for the Minister of Finance to do. And, you know, let's put it into context of what you were just having on your segment. There is a humanitarian crisis in long-term care right now. This is the Minister of Finance that was sitting on $12 billion as of September 30th, didn't choose to spend this money to keep people safe. And in the middle of this, well, he's decided that um, he's going to, you know, jet off to an exclusive island and leave um, leave this crisis behind for the rest of the caucus to uh, take care of is what is so shocking to people. It's not so much the trip or the vacation, that in itself is a problem, but it's the complete um, sense of, of betrayal that he did this. Uh, not only did he do it, but then there was, seems to be some kind of premeditated cover-up on social media. And as you mentioned exactly, Jane, the question still stands. I mean, if Ford is telling the truth, that he didn't know where his finance minister was, um, you know, that, that he hid it, then, then either the minister has hidden it from the premier, and that level of deceit is unbelievable, mm-hmm. or the premier himself didn't know where his number two finance guy was in the middle of this uh, pandemic that is uh, costing so much uh, for all of us in the province. And so, you know, we are going to have to question his his judgment and his level of, of transparency with the province of Ontario going forward. Patrick Gossage, uh, what's happened here? Well, you know, I, I'm glad uh, that, uh, you, that my fellow guest brought up the word trust because the fact of the matter is, is people will do things that the government tells them to do if they trust that government. I think everybody would agree on that. If you don't trust the government, you don't trust that they're asking you to do something that really is going to help you know, this health situation, uh, then, you know, you're more likely to say, oh, to heck with it. And I'm, I'm afraid that, that Ford and his people and this latest situation with Rod has, is breaking that trust and it's making it, it's making, it's going to make it easier for people to say, oh, to hell with it. The government doesn't know what they're doing. Their bloody finance minister flies off and asks us in a pre-recorded tape that I watched this morning, it really made me put the hair on my back rose when I saw him talking about the sacrifices people are making. And then this pre-recorded tape that played Christmas Eve for his, uh, you know, constituents. I mean, I think, I think the Ford government has got a long way to go to rebuild the trust in it that is so important for us to get over this this virus. That's my feeling. Now, John, John McIntyre, you speak for the Conservatives, but uh, do, do you feel yourself in a position to defend Rod Phillips? Like, what's the big deal? I was still doing all my work on Zoom and on my computer all the time, so the work was being done. Does it matter where I was? Uh, it, I don't think it matters what your political stripe is. I think everybody is gobsmacked. Uh, the reality is that um, probably uh, the single biggest conversation this Christmas was whether or not in every home you were going to uh, not see anybody, lie about seeing anybody, or whether or not which rules you were going to choose to follow to do your rationalization or maybe just reject them all. So Patrick's right. Uh, government is about trust more than anything. And, you know, Sandy is the finance critic. So to be fair, she doesn't agree with anything the government says or the finance minister. But sadly, um, she's ringing a bell today that she didn't ring. It was the finance minister. Uh, he is one of the smartest, ablest, most experienced members of the government. And for him to have the poor judgment to 
get on a plane, which, again, we thank our liberal government for allowing the planes to self-fly because they shouldn't be, uh, and get on a plane and leave for how long? He's been gone for like three weeks already. When was he planning on coming back? I'm not even sure if anybody's dug that one up yet. So his actions completely show bad judgment. And the problem is, if you're the top guy in the government making financial decisions, and everybody pretty much, I think, will agree that he showed terrible judgment in this situation. How do you then have the trust on any other decision? John McEtitian, conservative activist, political consultant and president of Bradgate Research Group. Patrick Gossage, liberal strategist and chairman of Media Profile and opposition NDP finance critic Sandy Shaw. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, where do we sign up to get a COVID-19 vaccine? We will address this question next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. With the changing of the years from 2020 to 2021, the focus turns to the latest developments on the COVID-19 vaccine front. But what should distribution look like? How will older Canadians be incorporated in the rollout plan? And what might the administration of the vaccines look like at local pharmacies and doctor's offices? While filling in for Libby's Nimer on Thursday, I asked these questions of Shoppers Drug Mart pharmacist John Papasturgio, family physician Dr. Nadia Alam, and Dr. Nahid Dosani, a palliative care physician at William Osler Health System, who spoke first about the initial rollout of the vaccine, which includes long-term care and retirement home residents. Generally dealing with some more positive news today. I actually got my va- my vaccine today, so um, ah, I, I, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. I mean, you know, thank you, and, and it just allows us to be able to serve the community better. And I have to say, it's the first time I've been in a healthcare space where people are just really happy. There's a positive vibe. Um, and that's really great. But what was unfortunate over the holidays is that the, the government took a break. Um, and delays like that can have ramifications. But I'm, I'm glad to hear we're, we're, um, we're off to the races, long-term care. We're, we're seeing health workers um, getting vaccinated. And there are discussions about high-priority groups. Um, but we haven't got a lot of clarity around people who live in congregate settings, for example, people who experience homelessness, the population I serve. So I look forward to, to learning more as the days and weeks come. Who will get the shot in the first three months of the year, uh, as we've been told thus far? My understanding is um, from a provincial perspective here in Ontario, and it is similar in many jurisdictions across Canada, that frontline health workers, particularly those who work in long-term care and congregate settings, or those who work in high-risk COVID areas will be prioritized. Residents of long-term care and other frail seniors will be prioritized. And I understand that our First Nations communities um, uh, in, in Ontario will also be prioritized as part of that first-pass approach. Let's go to Dr. Alam now. Uh, your impression of how the next phase will go. Do you think or have you received any information about that? I, I know that there are the priority populations have been identified. And, and I totally agree with Dr. Dasani that um, these are the populations that are most vulnerable, that are at highest risk. They should be vaccinated first. After that, there's a big question mark. We know that there are plans to have 
eight and a half million people in Ontario vaccinated by, by the summer. That's going to require an all hands on deck approach. What that approach actually looks like is still not available to uh, the public yet or to physicians yet. I think as far as I know, that is still being ironed out. This is much like we saw in the pandemic chain. This is, this is a rapidly changing environment. It's a rapidly evolving environment and um, trying to stay up, keep up with all of the news and all of the information is, is tough. This is the perfect time to bring in John Papasturgio, <laughs> uh, Shoppers Drug Mart pharmacist and owner on the Danforth. There has been a pitch by both shoppers and London Drugs to dispense the vaccine once it's widely available. So what does that mean? Where in the talks uh, do you know that they're at? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's beyond me. I think uh, at a very high level, they're probably, uh, you know, negotiating that right now. I think at the same time, you know, the Ontario Pharmacists Association is probably, uh, you know, involved the advocate on, on behalf of all pharmacists. We know we have over 4,000 pharmacies in Ontario, so the network is there. The, more importantly, the distribution network is there to get the vaccine into the stores, do it quickly, do it safely. Um, you know, uh, the doctor before me said the challenge this year was with the supply. I anticipate once, uh, you know, uh, we get the vaccine in, in stores, I'm going to be seeing lineups that are a kilometer long because I did see that early on in the flu season uh, as well. So. It's going to be, I think, managing that will be the biggest uh, challenge uh, at the store level. That was my conversation on Thursday with Shoppers Drug Mart pharmacist John Papasturgio, family physician Dr. Nadia Alam, and Dr. Nahid Dosani, a palliative care physician at William Osler Health System. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. As we begin a new year, a recent poll suggests the COVID-19 pandemic has made a slim majority of Canadians feel more grateful for what they have. The survey by Leger and the Association for Canadian Studies also finds more Zoomers than young people reported appreciating what they have now than before COVID-19. Joining me on Thursday to discuss, President of the Association for Canadian Studies, Jack Jedwab. Well, essentially, uh, in our end-of-the-year survey, and we've been doing 40-plus weeks of surveying since the outset of the contagion, uh, we asked uh, several questions, uh, one pertaining to New Year's resolutions that uh, people had for the uh, year 2021, and another about positive impacts uh, out of the experience of COVID-19. We know that by and large, uh, most people uh, feel that COVID-19 has been a terrible thing. And in previous polling, uh, they've indicated that 2020 is the worst year of their lives to date. That was expressed by half of the people that we'd surveyed a few months ago. Uh, but some people, despite all the negativity, uh, are able to identify some things or lessons that, that may be positive going forward. And one of them was feeling more grateful about what we have. So that was uh, what 56% of Canadians in this sort of open-ended question about positive impacts uh, had uh, given us a response. You note that younger respondents more often cited being thankful for spending more quality time with immediate family. Uh, is do you have a reading on that as, at all? Well, I would suggest that that's attributable to their opportunity to do so, right? Because our uh, 
Uh, older respondents, 65 plus, are less inclined to say that that was one of the things that they valued about the experience because they hadn't haven't had, I would suggest, the same type of opportunity to spend more quality time. Uh, for example, if we're going to talk about things personal, uh, as, as Steve did, uh, my uh, in-laws who live uh, about seven blocks from here, the only opportunities I've had to see them because they're in those upper age cohorts is from the backyard of the building they're in uh, at a distance. So they haven't had the quality time to spend with their immediate family, but uh, those younger uh, persons in the survey suggest they have. So, And on the feeling grateful issue, the younger uh, survey respondents, the 18 to 24, 41% gave that as a response compared to people uh, over 55, where upwards of 60% gave that response. So again, we're seeing those differences. Uh, and I think they're well reflected in what Steve, if I may call him that too, had to say earlier about taking a, 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 a different view of things and, 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 and drawing lessons out of this experience as we go forward. Jack, what about you? What, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful that my kids are in good health and yeah. my wife is in good health and uh, we're all able to you know, uh, manage our way through this uh, period and uh, we want for nothing. We're in a very fortunate position for that reason. Uh, you know, I take to heart what Steve said earlier. If we can help other people, given that we're safe and uh, and we're we basically are fortunate to not be able to be in a situation where we need things and so material otherwise, that we should extend our hand and, and reach out to as many people as we can, whether it's through video conferencing platforms like Zoom or others, or or just hearing people's voices. Uh, I think there's a lot of reason to be grateful when you're in that situation. And my mom was in a senior care facility. Uh, where a lot of people got COVID, she didn't get it, and she's fine. Uh, she oh, has uh, serious dementia, unfortunately, but you know she's she's alive, and I'm looking forward to seeing her again because I've missed that opportunity over the past few months. That was my conversation with Association for Canadian Studies President Jack Jedwab. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back. With Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Joan in North York wonders why there isn't a focused plan to get more personal support workers into long-term care. I hear all this talk about we don't have enough PSWs. What are we doing to encourage people to take the course to become a PSW. Um, and where do you get these PSWs? I don't, I hear people talking about it all the time, but there's nothing being done to pay them to take the course and to get in there and work. Cheryl in Arden, Ontario, called on Wednesday about Rod Phillips' trip to St. Bart's and what she thinks should be done about it. As far as I'm concerned, he needs to be fired and he needs to be fired now. He tried to cover up and make us think that he was in the country when he was outside of the country. And maybe he makes an excuse about, oh, we didn't know about the lockdown on, on, on Boxing Day. How could you not know it was coming? Were you not looking at the numbers? Don't you care? 
I think he doesn't care. I think this government doesn't care. I think that they make a rule that doesn't apply to them. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Queen May, who phoned from California to tell the story of her aunt, who was a resident of Tender Care Living Nursing Home in Scarborough. Our aunt was tested positive on December the 18th. Um, the family tried to follow up on her condition. There was very little information being provided. We had to call. We were constantly bugging them. Um, we were told that, you know, she had no symptoms in the beginning. Um, then we were told that she wasn't eating. Um, and, and next thing we know, we were told that she needed to, to be um, to be admitted to the hospital and that her condition got worse. The doctors um, told us that she was severely dehydrated. Um, she was having difficulty breathing and that she basically would, wouldn't make it and would have four, 24 to 48 hours to, 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 to you know, to, to, so that, that's it. That's, that was her time. On December 27th, we got the call that she passed. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so so as, as we are still processing this tragic loss, we are seeing and I think hearing from other families that there is this pattern where they tell us nothing, you know, everything's fine. We don't hear from them. And then next thing, next thing you know, you get that tragic call. Yeah, there, there's clearly a mess over there and, and there, they need so much help. And I, I, I think we're starting to... You get some attention with the families protesting and all of that, but there's there there's not there's not enough time. There there needs to be more more to be done to save the families that are still in there. That does it for this week's best of fight back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the fight back knockout call of the week, phone us noon to one weekdays, or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightback Libby, and have your say anytime on our fight back voicemail at four one six three six seven nine six three six four one six. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.